Good morning. I'm Liz Karras, uh, today's worship associate. Our reading this morning is a poem from Joy Harjo, a member of the Muskegee Creek tribe, called Praise the Rain. Praise the rain, the seagull dive, the curl of plant, the raven talk. Praise the hurt, the house slack the stand of trees, the dignity. Praise the dark, the moon cradle, the sky fall, the bear sleep. Praise the mist, the warrior name, the earth eclipse, the fired leap. Praise the backwards, upward sky, the baby cry, the spirit food. Praise canoe, the fish rush, the hole for frog, the upside down. Praise the day, the cloud cup, the mint flat, forget it all. Praise crazy, praise sad. Praise the path on which we're led. Praise the roads on earth and water. Praise the eater and the eaten. Praise beginnings. Praise the end. Praise the song and praise the singer. Praise the rain. It brings more rain. Praise the rain. It brings more rain. There's a lovely little spot tucked away behind the Argonne National Laboratory in Lamont, Illinois. It's one of those places you could easily miss and never encounter, though you might live amidst it your whole life. I imagine it's much like the Dupree Nature Preserve not far from here in Lancaster, unassuming down an unfamiliar road, but there in all of its splendor. The place of I speak of in Illinois is known as Waterfall Glen. As the name suggests, there are some lovely smaller waterfalls dotting the landscape. One such waterfall in particular is especially important to me. Early on in my relationship with my now husband, a photographer happened to be there taking someone else's engagement photos and offered to take ours. Standing out on a rock, water surrounding us as it plummeted off a small waterfall. Fast forward five years, the day after our wedding, we took a similar photo on that same rock. It is an important plot of nature tucked away. But beyond that sentimentality, beyond the trail that leads you along a barbed wire fence preventing you from entering Argonne Laboratory, with plenty of federal signs warning of imminent arrest, beyond the isolated nature of the place, there is another reason I remember it fondly. After climbing up the heights of its largest waterfall, there is a clearing with a couple picnic tables and a lovely spot to just stop and rest, to look over the waterfall, to look down as others climb up the trail, to look into the distance of trees and rocks and growth. But the most impressionable experience there was none of that. It was the praying mantis lounging in the sun on one of the picnic tables. A beautiful bright green with varying hues, smaller in stature, so it was a male. He just reclined there as we sat down. 
Upon noticing him, a funny and marvelous thing happened. I turned my head to look at the mantis, and he turned his head to look at me. (laughs) There it was, a meeting of the species, human and mantis. There it was, something we might just call a bug, an insect, something humans often avoid, fear, or unceremoniously remove from existence, turning its small green head with its massive green eyes and looking right at me. I don't know how else to describe that moment other than it being intimate, close, but also a smack in the face. The Buddhists would call it kensho, awakening. The Sufi mystics might say it's dancing with the beloved. Christian monks would say being drunk on the divine. For Unitarian Universalists, it's an affirmation. But but more than just an affirmation, it's a feeling of that interdependent web of existence that is in our seventh principle. It was awakening. My husband and I named the mantis. Mantis Bob is his name. (laughs) And we ate our lunch. He occasionally crept closer, assessing both of us, but still enjoying the sun. And then we left. Mantis Bob's fate left uncertain to us. Our fate left uncertain to him. There are many moments like those when we are able to take in the beauty of life, the beauty of the natural world, and feel slapped in the face or suddenly aware, perhaps both. When was the last time you felt that? It was in that moment I recalled the words of Dr. Ursula Goodenough, a woman who has not only made significant discoveries and inroads as a molecular biologist, but who is also spearheading a new religious movement rooted in nature and science. She's the president of the Religious Naturalist Association. She's also very close to Unitarian Universalists and attends one of our congregations. And she wrote this most famous piece of hers once. And so I profess my faith, she wrote. For me, the existence of all this complexity and awareness and intent and beauty and my ability to apprehend it serves as the ultimate meaning and the ultimate value. There's a lot to unpack in such a statement, but it answers some fundamental questions. What is nature? And maybe it answers more than that. What is life? What is meaning? What is religion? Perhaps more importantly, it answers the question of what is our place in nature? Those are tricky questions. And as Unitarian Universalists, we could easily answer them with platitudes and leave here today feeling pretty good about ourselves. Well, we might say, Nature is everything, therefore we are in nature, we are nature, etc., etc., etc. We could perhaps extend it a little further, making some sort of panentheistic thing. Love is nature, God is nature, and so on and so forth. Now, I love those statements. Don't get me wrong, I do love poetry. I think there's a great deal of grace to be found in the natural world, once we define what grace means for us. But it's all fine and good as long as we don't end our experience of nature in those platitudes. I believe there are harder truths to admit and explore when we confront our place as human beings in nature. Harder truths that are beneath every moment of awakening we experience, whether it's a praying mantis meeting our eyes, 
a dandelion persisting in our perfectly manicured lawn, or a brilliantly orange orb weaver weaving her giant web on the porch. The good news is we don't have to look hard as Unitarian Universalists for those among our history who've immersed themselves in the natural world in order to give name to their religious feelings and experiences. There's the obvious answers. Ralph Waldo Emerson, of course, whose foundational book, Nature, one of my personal sacred texts, grasps at the feelings we experience in the natural world. He wrote after a winter outing once, I have enjoyed a perfect exhilaration. I am glad to the brink of fear. When have you been glad to the brink of fear? Imagine that. And of course, there's Henry David Thoreau and his experiences at Walden Pond. Experiences that would move him to write about nonviolent civil disobedience, only to inspire Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. We need not rehash the reality that Thoreau was not entirely alone in his cabin. He lived amongst the freed slaves and the Hapgood and Walden woods. He ventured into town to drink pints at the tavern and get goody baskets from his mother to bring back to the cabin. We need not rehash that again and again. Because all that aside, it was in growing the beans, fishing, and withdrawing into solitude and nature that still inspired him. But we can look much closer to home than those two. We can recall the story of Don Speed Smith Goodloe, one of the founders of Bowie State University, a Unitarian who grew up in rural Garrett County. I said it right that time. <laughs> but because of his race as a black man, he was not admitted into our ministry with open arms. But surely he grew up in that rural setting, turning over soil in his hands, knowing the heartbeat of the bare field, the sweat on his brow, as crops were nurtured. His life was surely one of digging deep, growth, patience, wilting and tilling anew. We need not look far. And we need not look too far. Here we are on seven acres, Shawnee land worked by slaves, inhabited now by us, the Unitarian Universalists. <coughs> Trees aplenty, a creek runs through, and this building alone gathers our attention and eyes to the splendor of here and now, all around us, and we need not look far. As a religious naturalist, I say this often, but I'll say it, say it again. I believe nature is enough. It is enough for our inspiration, it is for our experience and awe and wonder, for all the wisdom we seek for the lessons that fuel our justice work in the world, for everything that's in between. It is enough. Any, and the only miracle in such an outlook is as we heard in Dr. Ursula Goodenough, is that we are aware in the first place and can partake of it. Nature writer Scott Stillman writes of this awareness. Time stops, he declares. Have I ever left this place? Have I been here all along? I ask the rocks, and they seem indifferent. Yes, no, what difference does it make, the rocks seem to say. A raven cries out, and I think I understand. Clouds darker now on the horizon, a blanket of peace settles in. I need nothing. I so need nothing. The seed of enlightenment has been sown. It must be watered to grow. That's a wonderful sentiment expressed by Stillman 
one that is capturing a growing movement to reconnect and reimmerse ourselves in the natural world. But when we use that word enlightenment, it leads a lot of us down a couple different avenues. First, we often think it's something that's hidden behind closed doors, and you need a secret password to obtain it. Or second, upon obtaining it, you're blissed out and floating on a cloud forever and ever. Amen. It's neither of those. The more appropriate word here is realization. Realization of what is already present, already there, and already within you. That being said, I still think it's crucial we talk about reconnecting with the natural world. Not because we'll discover something hidden, but because we'll discover something we've been estranged from. It's not just the personal reflections that capture this sentiment, like we heard with Stillman. There's a wealth of data that points to one thing. Reconnecting with the natural world makes us happier, healthier, and rejuvenates us. Florence Williams, in her book, The Nature Fix, lays out some of this data. And here's just a couple tidbits. She writes that cypress trees, did you know this, create phytonicides, if you're a botanist, forgive me here, phytonicides, which emit what we would call the smell of the forest. But what they do is reduce our stress by up to 53% and lower our blood pressure by 5 to 7%. There's also growing studies you can find outside of this book in the International Journal of Immunopathology and Pharmacology. Say that five times fast. I dare you. And they dig into the data saying that the Japanese practice of forest bathing, shinrin-yoku, that of immersing oneself in nature, can boost immune function by up to 50%. Wow, right? And we could keep going, but why throw out that data in the first place? We throw out that data, we dig into that, we hear these nature narratives because we live in a world and a culture and a system upon system upon system that sows the seeds of disconnection and discourages listening to our deepest selves within the rush and noise of progress. The studies of which we've heard only a snippet of this morning, those reflections, those growing movements, they all tell us one loud and clear message to reconnect with who we are at a very fundamental level as human beings on this planet, to reconnect with each other and the natural world, and the list goes on and on and on. Again, we could easily end this discussion here right now. We could end our proclamation, reconnect with nature, with a period or exclamation point, and move on. We can mosey on out after the service and go to the yellow buckeye or the Kentucky coffee tree on our grounds and revel in their height and beauty. We could cradle a stink bug in our palms and marvel at the movement of legs and antenna. Or we could just soak up the blue sky and the crisp air. Wouldn't that be nice? But the greatest criticism I've heard about the environmental movement is just how individualistic and conceptual it can be, or how it is a movement only for those with the economic means to engage it. Knowing what we know, the bigger question is what are we going to do with it for more than ourselves? That is where the deepest reconnection occurs. For me as a Unitarian Universalist minister, as someone who loves our seventh principle, 
and is now grappling with a faith that is wondering what it will look like with an eighth principle, which you adopted as a congregation this past December. There's a decisive call to action now in every single principle we hold true. With all of this, in those moments when reconnection occurs in the natural world, what are we going to do with it? And I find for myself that the roots of desire for justice in our world grow deeper. And that is my hope for all of us. So yes, find a glorious cypress tree and marvel. Commune with the mantis or the fox. Breathe deeply and feel that connection with the material world, the only world that we are assured of. Go right ahead. But then ask yourself, what kind of world do you want to live in? Do you want to live in a world that is increasingly disconnected and divided? Or do you want to plunge into the wilderness and embark on the good work that is fostering connection in a world in need of repair? I use the the word wilderness intentionally here. Nature is great, but oftentimes that conjures up images of fields and flowers and butterflies alone, which is lovely, don't get me wrong. But the reconnection here before us includes deserts, barren fields, frozen wastes, harsh landscapes where life can still abound. Of course, what I mean here is that the work of connection means encountering suffering, disappointment, and the difficult parts of life as well. Our seventh principle reminds us that everything is interconnected, and this includes our suffering. It includes the things we'd rather forget. It includes the knowledge that if we are immersed in nature amidst the birdsong, there is a hawk diving in on a smaller bird or a rodent. There is a bug we stepped on or rolled over. There are saplings losing the battle for more light. Nature is enough, and it points the way to both the glory and tragedy of life. And so this is where the call of justice emerges more clearly for me. We do not despair at the world as it is, and in this great mystery of being human, we can't help but want to change things, to make them better, to grow, and as we've learned, to reconnect. As a member of the Poor People's Campaign, I wholeheartedly believe that you cannot talk about poverty without talking about race. You can't talk about women's rights without talking about indigenous rights, and so on and so forth. Injustice anywhere is interconnected. But so too with environmentalism and access to the natural world. That is part of the conversation as well. The task of reconnecting is also the work of intersectionality. If nature provides awareness, compassion, and rejuvenation, we need to also confront how access to nature has been historically limited. When Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Public Works Administration sought to alleviate public housing shortages, black communities rarely had any green space as part of those community plans versus white communities, where there's a clear call to have green space aplenty. And that's only the beginning of how access to nature has been restricted. But knowing this, knowing we live in an overcommitted, frantic society, knowing that the natural world gives us immeasurable benefits, knowing there are those among us whose access has been historically restricted, what is the point? And then I think back to that praying mantis at the waterfall. 
those big, green, aware eyes looking right into mine. Was there a mutual acknowledgement of existence? I have no idea. I don't know the physiology of a, of a mantis. But for me, the larger primate in that situation, I could not help but leave that encounter recognizing just how fragile life is, how temporary and beautiful it can be, how unpredictable, how sad and yet how good it is in all of its fragility. When in your life have you had such recognition, such connection? How could you not be moved to greater compassion and desire to bring about compassion in our world? And so this is the call and the challenge here. It isn't a call to go hug a tree after the service, but please do if you must. It's a call to reconnect. It's a call to concrete action. A call to enter into the wilderness. As we heard in Joy Harjo, praise the path on which we're led. Praise the roads on earth and water. Praise beginnings. Praise the end. Praise the song and praise the singer. Praise the rain for it brings more rain. Praise the rain for it brings more rain. Blessed be. Amen.